Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Coming up, Charleswood Councilor Kevin Klein is calling for zero-based budgeting. We'll talk to him about that. And political scientist Chris Adams and I will discuss what the upcoming provincial election campaign might look like. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Joining us now, Kevin Klein, City Councilor for Charleswood, Tuxedo, and Westwood. Uh, good afternoon, Kevin. Good afternoon, Hal. How are you? Good. So you uh, presented to EPC Executive Policy Committee, the Mayor's Inner Circle, this idea of zero-based budgeting. Uh, first of all, explain what that is, and then we'll get into the presentation and, and what they told you. You know, there's lots of different uh, concepts or, or thoughts online about zero-based budgeting, but really what it is um, from a higher level is the opportunity to sit in front of a department manager and say, "Start, uh, tell me exactly why you need the expenses you have. So as opposed to just adding on to uh, uh, expense categories every year, this gives us an opportunity to go into the department, clean it out, and start over again and say, okay, now let's justify every dollar that we're going to spend. It allows us to allocate resources, quite frankly, to where we need the most and take them out of areas where they're being held as slush funds. And I kind of think we need to take a look at everything we spend now uh, because a lot of the time it's spent this year and every year because it's been that way for 20 or 25 years and maybe it's changed. Maybe we don't need to be spending that much. Maybe we need to spend more, right? I absolutely agree, and uh, that has been one of the frustrations of mine because, you know, I believe the death of any organization is when you hear people say, well, we've always done it that way, or we've always had that that expense line. And and you hear that daily in City Hall, and, and that is just the wrong culture, the wrong attitude. It's not going to help us. Okay, and EPC said no. Were you expecting a no, and were you expecting it so quickly? Uh, yeah, I was absolutely expecting a no, and I was absolutely expecting it so quickly. Um, see, listen, I mean, their comments back, and the video will be online. People can go watch it. Um, you know, basically, they think they're doing a great job right now, that it is open to all counselors, that they believe the budget process is working and things are going great. Uh, but that's what they're paid to say. Right. That's what they're there for. Uh, The reality is I'm hearing something completely different from taxpayers. And as someone who's been involved in very high level budgets, uh, looking at the budget process, uh, it was, quite frankly, uh, uh, not a budget. I mean, I don't want to be rude about it. It Just it's broken. It doesn't give us the detail we need. Um, and, And there's a lot of questions still unanswered. And this is just really an opportunity to, to make a difference. And it was quite interesting. They came back after I left and said, oh, well, they spoke to somebody, uh, a former city councillor in Calgary, who said they're not doing zero-based budgeting. Well, if you go to the City of Calgary website, they are. In fact, it was the City of Calgary who said, you know, in their reviews, they've saved almost $68 million or more, and they've only done part of it. Uh, they see $10 in savings for every dollar they spend on zero-based budgeting. So, and, of course, this is the right thing to do. And that's in Calgary. Are other cities doing it, too? Yeah, there's a number of cities across North America that do do it. Um, and, again, there's some links online that you can go to. There's a, a group called the... Uh, 
Um, government uh, Federation uh, or Government Financial Officers Association, not-for-profit organization, not associated with any governments or funding, uh, but a group of people and a, an organization that will help municipalities, cities, provinces, states um, get their finances in line. The, the zero-based budget, the number one thing, that, as I said, it does, it justifies every dollar, but it also makes it open and transparent. You can't do it without being entirely open and entirely transparent. And that's what the, I think that's what we're missing most. It, it, it's not about cutting. It's not about cutting to the bone and, and you know, hurting people. It, it's understanding where our dollars are being spent and allocating them where they're better used or where they'll do a better job for us or help us achieve what our biggest issues are, our priorities. And, and we're not doing that today. I think that's very obvious to everybody. Well, and this is what a homeowner, a family would do, right? If they say, hey, we might be spending too much money, you strip back and you add it in and come up with a number that works, right? Exactly, right? We, we base it on how much money you have coming into the household. You can't simply go back. If you go to the 2018 audited financial statements right now, it'll show you that I'm, our fees increased by 7 to 9% from 2017 to 2018. Uh, we had a property tax increase. We've, we've had all kinds of increases that we're not talking about. We simply say, oh, we're not getting enough funding from other levels of government. But there's things we're doing that zero-based budgeting will bring out. And maybe that's what they don't want. Because, I mean, we put 30% cushion on every job we do now. So a road or whatever we do as a capital project or roads in general, we put 30% more on there. Um, because at the end of the day, we can be political and come out and say, look how great we are. We're, we're, we're well under budget. But the reality is, you know, when you when you put a 30% cushion on, does that mean you're, you're really good at budgeting or you're just afraid that you don't know what you're doing? Um, maybe a 10% cushion, but I'd even go as far as 15. Now there's 15% we could put somewhere else. And if we just saved just 10% of our budget right now doing the zero-based budget, that's $100 million plus. $100 million. That's more than we're spending on roads. 10% savings. And this works. And I don't know what would be more important than taking the time to properly allocate our finances so that we can look taxpayers in the eye and say, we're doing a good job. Here's where everything goes. But it appears this is going to be an uphill battle. What's your next move? Well, you know what? Uh, obviously, uh, you can't beat EPC. It's just impossible. Uh, but I'm not going to give up. I, I think taxpayers deserve to know where uh, their money are, is going. I think they deserve to know where their money is being spent. There was lots of claims today made that, well, councillors have all kinds of access to information. Uh, we've asked a number of questions that have never been answered. So I'm going to continue to ask those questions. And I don't want to be the problem. I just want to continue to offer up the solutions, and then hopefully, hopefully, one day they'll see what this is about. They made it very personal in the sense saying, oh, well, if it's, uh, if it's not your way, it's the highway, you won't even work with us. And I said, well, actually, this is about Winnipeg. It's not about me. I don't, this is about being able to, uh, you know, say we're, you know, we're not $150 million away from our debt ceiling. That to me is very scary. Or, you know, you know, handing and putting our hand out again to different levels of government saying, well, if they don't give us more money, we're going to have to raise taxes. What is that? that? That's not how we manage money. That's not how you manage your home. It's, you're not going to call Visa and say, look, if you don't put more money on my credit card, uh, I'm not going to use it anymore. You know, they're, they're going to say fine. 
Mm. Um, so that that's what this is about is is changing the culture. I would like to have the culture at City Hall where we cared about every expense we made, like everything we bought, we cared about that. We looked into it. We made sure it was what we needed and in the area that was most important to us. That's what I would like to see with it. And I'll keep pushing for it. And I've only got a minute left, but I know you're you're going to forge on with your Planning Commission roundtable. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's tomorrow night at the Park West Inn, and everybody is invited to come to that. Again, I think there's an issue with our uh, ability to make decisions um, on the Property and Planning uh, Development Committee. I'm on that. So I'm, I'm one of the guilty ones. I think that this is better left to an independent body, uh, a, a body made up of uh, experts in the field, uh, trained professionals that obviously aren't developers and have an interest in what's being decided, but that also includes members of, the, of community groups that have something to say about their neighborhood. Um, and and this is this meeting is to sit down and have that conversation. If you look at the Winnipeg Act, when the Winnipeg Act was created, those that had a vision for our city already had in the Winnipeg Act that we should have a planning commission made up of an independent body. Well, we didn't do it, um, but we should have done it because they were right. This isn't something that you want to leave vulnerable to politics. This is something that's far too important for that. And look at what happened to that poor couple that wanted to build a, a home or a sixplex on their property and, and, and how that all fell apart and how much money it cost them. That's why I want to have this. So I'm going to push forward. I'm going to bring all the information to the next PP&D meeting. I'm going to take it to council, which will be EPC and I'll present it to them again with what people are telling us. And, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm just going to give them the facts and hope that they see the value in this and say, you know what? We don't need to be all powerful. We do need experts making that decision because I don't know engineering. I would like someone who's got a degree in engineering making that decision. Kevin, thanks for your time. No, thank you, Hal. I appreciate it very much. Kevin Klein, the city councilor for Charleswood, Tuxedo, and Westwood. On Jeff Courier's show earlier, Canadian press reporter Steve Lambert. So we'd be looking at a, a campaign that would start early to mid-August, culminating September 10th. That's what all the signs are pointing to now, but again, things can change. So I guess we can stop speculating about an election call. Seems we will with all the announcements yesterday and again today. We're going to get that call very soon. So let's look at the campaign now. What kind of a campaign might we see here in Manitoba? Chris Adams is a political scientist at St. Paul's College at the University of Manitoba, and he joins us on the phone now. Good afternoon, Chris. Hi, Hal. Nice to be on your show again. Yeah, thank you for doing this. So let's, you know, speculation aside, when exactly all that looks like we're going to go to the polls in uh, early to mid-September. What kind of a campaign are we going to see? Is is Winnipeg going to be the battleground again? The polling would suggest that's the case. Yes, that's right. You know, the the uh, um, especially South Winnipeg, South Winnipeg uh, f- uh, flipped mostly over to the NDP and and uh, middle class voters, people who came over from the Conservatives, Progressive Conservatives in the late '90s, over to Gary Doerr's NDP. Um, uh, Doerr had a number of strong local candidates across urban parts of Winnipeg, and we had middle class voters comfortable with Gary Doerr and and staying with the NDP. 
during the first few years of Selinger's premiership. So uh, Brian Pallister wants to hold on to uh, middle-class Winnipeggers who can flip and flop according to um, um, the party they feel the most comfortable with. And I think he wants to hold on to uh, many of the women voters who came over to the PCs from the NDP, uh, especially, you know, areas like Fort Richmond, uh, St. Norbert, St. Vital, uh, St. River. Those types of constituencies are areas in which people who are homeowners or condominium owners and worried about taxes, but also uh, worried about education and health care. And the Tories have been strong in polling. We just saw new polling this week. I think it was this week or maybe the tail end of last week that showed the premier, uh, almost half of Manitobans support the job he's doing. They approve of the job he's doing. Uh, Often with elections, uh, when you see a change in government, it's because people are unhappy. People seem to be happy with the premier. Yeah, I, I suspect part of that's bringing the PST down. Uh, I think some some recent announcements. I think the backing off on some of the uh, the hospital clo- uh, emergency closures. Uh, one of them being being uh, um, uh, slowing down that that process. So I, I think um, um, I think middle class voters are not rattled uh, like they might have been a couple of years ago. I think also uh, um, when voters go to the voting booth, they vote for three things. They vote for their premier or their leader. They vote for the party and what the party stands for. And thirdly, they vote for their local local candidate for each of the parties. So that's the mixture. I do know that, that over the past couple of years, Brian Pallister has lagged behind the popularity of his party. And it seems like he's, he's caught up now, um, judging from what you're reporting me. I have not seen that poll. I'd have to look at it a little bit more closely. Yeah, I want to ask you, here's my theory on why we're going to the polls early and not at yeah. that that fixed date. Mm-hmm. I think the Premier wants to win another four years, retire soon after winning, hand it over to another leader who has time to build up the name and credibility and, and all that stuff heading into another election. I think we're a year early because Pallister wants to hang it up a year earlier than if he had waited. Uh, you know that that's an interesting theory, and I'm not discounting it. I, I think that um, the way we've seen this premier operate is is when people in the media or the the attentive public uh, are pushing him in a certain way after he's feeling out a certain idea, he tends to dig his heels in, and we've seen that on a number of things. So I think the more he sort of thought about an early election, the more he got blowback he got, the more he resisted that blowback. So I think that's one of the things. But the second thing, which is, I think, a political strategy, is if he's high in the polls right now, why wait another year if, uh, with the possibility that things might change? Right. We, might have, yeah. um, we might have extra flooding next spring. We might have <clears throat> forest, pardon me, forest fires or putting out <clears throat> that would eat away at, at uh, the finances, things like that mm-hmm. could be he might have a couple of backbenchers that do some embarrassing things. So so right now he's he's steering a ship that he feels is quite stable. He's in the afterglow of the PST coming down. He's got a plan for balancing the deficit, uh, the balancing the budget. And uh, so I, I think he thinks that this is the time to go instead of waiting for an unknown year from now.
I, I'm, I'm curious to I want to ask you something else. We're kind of getting away from the election sure. a bit, but it, it sort yeah. of relates. Um, when the premier went out of his way to talk about this blackout and how he was, yeah. you know, trying to make it n- not even the perception that, uh, you know, uh, his government was trying to benefit from announcements and all that kind of stuff. And then he got into it a bit with reporters uh, during the news conference, you know. He, he went mm-hmm. out of his way to kind of go, oh, you know, there's no advantage here. And then I kind of feel like in in getting a little uh, testy with reporters, he yeah. sort of, he kind of ruined whatever he was trying to do there. Am I overreading that or... Well, you know, he he's had some rough uh, periods with reporters. You know, your your friend Richard Cloutier and yep. um, Scrum. We've seen that with Larry Cush, in fact, threatening lawsuits and and on on the Costa Rica uh, coverage. So um, he he has sort of a rough and tumble relationship with with the reporters, and and uh, I think he kind of likes mixing it mixing it up with with them. Um, Part, you know, I, I, you know, the spirit of the fixed election legislation was that the premier or the prime minister, because they have fixed elections as well at the federal level, um, the, the the spirit of it was that we would be able to predict when the election is to occur, and that that um, it wouldn't be just sort of an arbitrary decision by a premier or a prime minister as to when to go in. So I, I would say the spirit of the legislation is that we should be going next year in October. Um, obviously, uh, he would, the premier would disagree with me, and so now he's he's wanting to live within the spirit of the legislation by having the 90-day uh, media blackout, which I I think is a good thing that that blackout would be occurring because you don't want announcements of new health centers and and daycares and what have you with uh, with just weeks to go to that election. One thing, Hal, I am concerned about though is is that we do have uh, a federal election occurring in October. Yeah. You look at 2015, the federal election, that began at the beginning of August. It was the longest election in, in our living memory. But, you know, if if this was occurring in 2015, we'd be in the middle of a, of a federal election while the provincial election is going on. And as a political scientist, I have to say, I'm a little bit concerned that we've got different signs on people's front lawns and people will scratch their heads saying, like is that a is that a federal candidate or is that a provincial candidate? Who's this volunteer at my door talking about the local candidate? Uh, which level of government? Um, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's a I think it's frankly a problem for our voters to to be dealing with two major general elections at the same time. And if we've got two campaigns going, who does that benefit? Who who wins in a, a confusing situation like that? Or or is that uh, uh, are we unable to uh, read that? Well, I, I mean, on initial thinking about this, I, I think the incumbent, it, it, it benefits the incumbent, people who, who know the names, haven't had the time to investigate all the candidates in their local riding or constituency. Um, now, a, a voter who, like my kids who are young adults, they, they watch which are the candidates, they read the literature, and they even make a few phone calls. Those really committed types of voters um, have to do double the work. And, and I, I think the incumbents have a, an advantage in that voters will recognize that name. The second thing is I worry about voter turnout. If, if uh, um, 
do we get voter fatigue? And right. and if we do, I don't have evidence of this, but I suspect some people might say, well, I'll, I'll go to one election, but not, not the other one a couple of weeks later. And you, you wonder um, if there's low turnout. I think low turnout benefits the incumbents more than the challenger. And, and talk uh, briefly here, a uh, final question about the NDP. Can the Liberals break through? And what about the Greens and some other parties? How do you see, uh, you know, if we, if we believe the poll, that uh, the Pallister government may get in there again. Can the NDP make it close? Will the Liberals yeah. maybe play kingmaker? Uh, give me your thoughts. Well, there might be, you know, what we call on business and marketing brand halo, and and that might occur with the two elections overlapping, that as people feel a rosy glow about the federal liberals, I'm making that up, but let's say they do, um, that that will benefit the provincial liberals, I think, because it's all happening within within a month of, of the same ele- of the federal election. Uh, so that being said, I think that if Jagmeet Singh is, is lagging behind at the federal polls, that's got to have some impact on on how people feel about the NDP as a broad brand, regardless of provincial or federal. If people start feeling jazzed up about Jagmeet Singh as they as they have with with uh, um, some previous leaders, then that might have a benefit impact on on Wab Canoe's provincial NDP. So so that's really where there is some some impact there. I do think that the wild card, leaving aside the federal election overlap, the, one of the wild cards is Dugald Lamont. And uh, the question is, do they have the resources, the capacity, that is, to, to get good candidates, to vet the good candidates, because they had a problem in the last election with certain candidates that were running that, that they had to break away from, and, uh, and also advertising and things like that. So the question isn't um, whether the Liberals uh, can put on a good leadership job. I think Dugald Lamont's done fairly well so far. I think the question is, do they have the horsepower, the capacity to, to uh, get the vote out? Chris, thanks a lot. I love having these conversations with you. Thank you. Well, I enjoy chatting with you, Hal. Take care of yourself. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.